We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Truth Perspective. I'm your host for today, Harrison Cayley, as usual with my host, Elon Martin. Hello. And joining us again from last week, Shane Chance. Hello, everybody. And joining us especially this week, she wasn't here last week. We've got, uh, were you here? I was here last oh, week. Oh, <laughs> I have brain problems. Yeah, Carolyn, again, <laughs> thought have... editors. I was thinking about the week before. Right. Yeah. That's my excuse. There you go. So we are going. <laughs> yeah, I've got an excuse because last week we were talking about aliens and UFOs and the crazy stuff that goes along with them in all those different kinds of phenom- phenomena. We didn't get to conclude our discussion because there's just too much to talk about on the subject in any given two-hour program. So, but uh, we're going to continue today and talk about everything. So. By the end of, t- of uh, today's show, we will have covered the full extent of the... <laughs> everything. Yeah, of everything. Yeah. You will understand it all in this two hours. And you'll understand it all. Everything you've ever wanted to know about aliens, but we're afraid to ask. <laughs> and beyond. Well, maybe not that much, but we're going to try and at least give some of the important what we consider to be the important bits of the big pit, the big picture and how it all fits together. So hopefully everyone has listened to last week's show. If you haven't, it's available on Blog Talk Radio, so just go to our Blog Talk section on the website and listen to the archived version to get caught up because we're pretty, pretty much just going to be continuing on and assuming that you listen to that show. So hopefully that doesn't become a problem. But to start out... Um, we're just going to talk about some crazy stuff. A couple different phenomena that we didn't cover last week, or we might have just briefly mentioned it. Um, we'll start out with cattle mutilations. Because just like the crop circle phenomenon, another one that we didn't talk about last week, this one just kind of cropped up in the 20th century. There are um, some vague possible reports uh, from earlier centuries, but nothing too definitive or exhaustive in the historical record. It seems to have pretty much come out of nowhere, and then kind of there was, there have been just tons of them in the last few decades, where farmers will find their livestock, which includes primarily cows, but other animals as well, um, dead, mutilated, and there's a lot of strange things about the, the cases and the, the carcasses. I think, Shane, did you have a, a recent... Well, well, yeah, there was a, one that I found from 2013. And the interesting thing about you know these stories is that there's these common elements that you find again and again. And uh, this one was just you know so typical of these stories. And it's from a local news station, uh, KSHB in Kansas City. 
so the it, it's not you know it's not written by uh you know a, a UFO website and uh this uh, Missouri rancher they found um three cows uh first in the first one was in December 2011 and uh Mitchell the farmer said uh she had obviously been cut from the side of her jaw Mitchell said her tongue was gone her ear was gone and she initially assumed the animal had fallen victim to strangers or was part of uh, some sacrificial ritual. Um, but she made another uh, discovery on July 9th of 2012. Uh, I looked to see her tongue. I looked to see her tongue was gone. I looked first to see her tongue was gone. Then immediately noticed the udder had been completely removed. Uh, the reproductive organs were gone too, Mitchell said. A char mark outlining the cow's body uh, is still visible today. Uh, made the death even more mysterious. And finally, on July 19th, Mitchell found the third cow. She said the heart, uh, its heart was exposed and its teeth were cut off. And all three animals had the tongues cut out. And these uh, these cuts, they also they they looked uh, surgical with the clean, uh, precise incisions. And all three deaths, there was no blood, uh, despite the ga- the animals gaping wounds. So these are just a few of common characteristics of the cattle mutilations because when they first started, news uh, and local police and FBI, the FBI was called in for a big investigation at one point. They pretty much wrote them off to cult murders and just some renegade renegade bunch of um, cattle killers. But when you look at the circumstances actually surrounding, a highly coordinated group of rebellious teenagers. And usually, another feature of this particular article didn't mention it, but there are no footprints. There's no evidence of activity around the animal or any any kind of uh, damage into the area. It's mm-hmm. like the the animal was dropped where it was, and whatever was happening was happening by people in hoverboards. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> and the other thing is that um, quite often, you know, these farmers would want to uh, find out how these things happened. They would hire veterinarians uh, who would look at the animals, who had no idea what type of technology was being used mm-hmm. to make such precise cuts. Uh, other things that, that have been um, detailed were, you know, the, the sphincters cored out. Um, organs or missing. Specific organs missing. Like you mentioned, Shane, all the blood missing. Uh, yeah, this is this is otherworldly. Yeah, and just very odd if you look at the pictures, because there are a ton of pictures of these the precision of the cuts and just the strange parts that are removed. So you'll have all the all the flesh removed from like the lower jaw, or around the genitals, or just or parts of the head or ears. It's just a strange, you know. It's just strange to see these specific parts. They seem totally arbitrary when you look at it. But um, the other thing too is that uh, sometimes this, these discoveries would not happen for two or three days. And uh, there's nothing like a downed animal to bring out the, the scavengers, and no coyotes would go near them, mm-hmm. rats would not go near them, so there was no damage to the carcass beyond what had been done in the initial incident. I mean, these other creatures would avoid the area like the plague. 
Yeah, so you can rule out positively scavengers or, or predator animals because they, well, first of all, they couldn't have made these cuts, couldn't have isolated these organs in the way that they did and these body parts, and the animals avoid them. Even the other cattle won't go near this the, the dead animal. And so, yeah, like we said, missing, totally missing blood, no trace of blood. So where did this blood go? Where did this act of mutilation take place? There was obviously some kind of um, technology used or, you know, it, um, well, to explain the, the cuts and the, the lack of blood, like something weird is going on. If it, if it were done right at the site of the crime or the site of the body, You'd have, they would have, there would have to be something really strange going on for this to be the case, for there to be no footprints. Think about it, no blood with these, with these cuts all over the body, with missing organs. Where are the organs? Where's the blood? And these, uh, these char marks, too, mm-hmm. that are commonly found, and that also suggests that there is some type of technology being used, and you know, we don't really know what it is. On a more mundane level, all of this reminds me a little bit of uh, poachers. Um, in Africa, you have guys who kill uh, elephants for their tusks and just leave the carcass there. Uh, there's this uh, attitude of indifference, uh, of, of complete apathy towards the animal just for the value of the tusk. Uh, in Japan, you have fishing boats that uh, fish for shark, cut their fins off, and then dump the rest of the body back into the sea. So, you know, on our own level, we seem to be doing... Uh, this is assuming that uh, that these cattle mutilations are happening from from other beings, but um, you know there's the same kind of sense of disregard for the animal and, and apathy uh, that exists on our level as well with mm-hmm. elephants and sharks. So what are these? Some kind of trophy kills, or maybe the the parts taken have some kind of value in some way. I wonder if it's something to do with the glands in these areas and different secretions because the if you think about genital areas and throat areas there's a lot of glands there and the lack of hormones lack of bodily fluids so there's something strange going on there now the really creepy thing well before we get to the creepy thing um Ilan, you just said we assume some kind of other beings i think it's safe to assume that no human with the technology that we know that humans have could have done these things. So I think. Well, and if we did have that technology, why would we be? Well, why would a scientist yeah. go out into a cow field and mm-hmm. uh, make these incisions and then leave the cow, you know, and leave the evidence? It's just, you know, it's very bizarre. Yeah, I can think of a few doctors that would be happy to get their hands on that kind of precise surgical technology for operations and things like that. So. Well, sure, but they'd have their own lab. Like they wouldn't be going no. out in cow fields. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so even if there were humans with this type of technology, yeah. they're holding it back from the people that really need it and they can do good with it. Well, maybe. But a lot of these cases are associated with UFOs. So the the farmers will see UFOs the night of it, the night of the mutilation, or the night before they find the carcass. There are even some kind of really out there stories where you can actually see the direct connections. So a UFO and then the cow kind of like falling from the sky or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and oh, one of the other things is some of the carcasses do show bodily injuries suggesting or that 
they might have even fallen and so broken a leg or something as they were falling from from the sky, broken branches from a tree next to the next to the carcass. So very suggestive pieces of of data associated with these kinds of cases. So I think you know it's hard to say for sure to make the absolute connection, but I think it's pretty uh, pretty reasonable connection to make between UFOs and the and the cattle mutilation phenomenon. And you can also get into reports from certain abductees who also make the connection. You know, seeing seeing cows on board the UFOs, or or seeing seeing them being taken up into a flying saucer or whatever. Now I think it gets even scarier when we have reports, not as many, but of human mutilations. Yeah, that's what I was going to get into. Well, yeah, and it, it seems as though there have been many uh, corpses. Uh, located that had very similar incisions to what we've seen with these cows. Um, so uh, there's a connection there as well. Understandably, those reports would have been muted or damped down as much as possible. Yeah, very few people have actually looked into the human mutila- mutilation phenomenon because it has happened. It's hard to know how, much, how many times it's happened because it looks like whenever something like that does occur. It does get covered up. You can find one case that happened, I think, in Brazil, mm-hmm. and you can actually see the pictures of the guy. And it looks like it's it looks like a cattle mutilation in the sense that the same areas of the body are removed. You can see the 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 hole in the in the genital area. The the stomach cavity is just depressed, like all the certain organs were taken out. Different parts of the um, of the body were just removed surgically. So it's pretty gruesome. It's a pr- it's pretty easy to find if you just search human mutilation, but there are go on. Uh, Don Eckert, you know, yeah, he's, he's written on on the subject, and you know, like you said, Harrison, there's not too many people that you know really dig into this, and even even within the UFO community, you know, the topic seems uh, shunned, and just because it's so creepy and so you know scary and scary, yeah, to mm-hmm. think of the implications of what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, but Doc, uh, Don Ecker, he uh, he wrote of a case in Idaho in 1979 uh, about the there's they found a mutilated and nude body of a young man. Uh, he was found in a, a wilderness area, mutilated in the same fashion that has become so familiar with the cattle. His genital his genitals had been surgically removed. His lips had been taken off, and an ear was missing. And there was also a noticeable lack of blood. Oh. Well, one of the things that Ecker talks about in his article, I think it's called the Human Mutilation Factor. It was written in the I think yes. early 90s, and he mentions that he, um, I can't remember if he was ex-law um, enforcement or not, but either he, either he was or he knew someone who was, and got them to look into cases fitting a certain um, certain parameters, like um, mutilate unsolved murders with signs of mutilation. And so they looked into it, went through the files, and came back with the answer that there were no unsolved cases matching these criteria. And Ecker knew that this was false mm-hmm. because there, there uh, I can't remember the case, but there's a famous uh, serial killer case where the, the victims did, did have these mutilation, well, certain types of mutilation. He, he wasn't specific enough to rule out Mm-hmm. like um, what might be a murder, and those cases were, un- were unsolved. So 
so right there, he he knew that it was false because there are there are mutilation murders that are unsolved. So and and they were told, okay, well, if you want to, if you have any more questions, you're going to have to come down to the station and basically ask in person and answer some questions. So basically, he's being stonewalled to you know, yeah, look be, from being able to look into these these yeah. cases. And I mean, and absolutely, this the police would you know forensics would not be trained to look for these signs or interpret them in that particular direction. Mm-hmm. They would just say, you know, crazy cult killer, and kind of quietly shelve it. So, unfortunately, there's not very much information on the human mutilation, except that it happens because no one wants to look into it, and those that do can't find anything. So, kind of a dead end in that regard. Well, like so much of what we're talking about uh, these past couple of shows, uh, we just, most people do not have the context to... Uh, assess what it is we're seeing. Um, and so most of us, I think, are going to grab onto the easiest explanation that's provided by those in authority in order to not have to think about it too much because of what you said earlier, Shane, you know, what are the implications? Uh, they're, they're just too frightening and you can just imagine folks' minds just shutting off as a kind of defense mechanism to to even investigating it with any amount of objectivity. Well, the circumstances about the investigation or the attempted investigations remind me of David Politis's missing 411 cases mm-hmm. because he ran, he has run into the same block blockages in official reports in the National Park Services, um, basically withholding information about these missing cases that of people who disappear in national parks in the United States. And, of course, the disappearances aren't just in the United States, but that's primarily where he does his research. And there are some, just some equally strange stories that he has in his books. Now, I won't talk about any one case in particular, but um, there are some cases, for example, where they do find the remains of a person who had, been, who had gone missing, but the circumstances surrounding how they how they find them are just totally odd. Like um, there were a couple, um, one in particular, I think, where they found just certain bones. Well, first of all, sometimes they find bones, but it's just certain bones and often just fragments, and they'll all be placed. To, they'll all be they'll all be found in the same area. And in this one case, they found his this guy's pants on the on the ground uh, in this in the forest, as if he'd just like taken off his pants while he was standing up and then just left them there. Now, in one of the legs was one of his leg bones. There were some of his bones in like one of his socks, but then the other leg was missing, and the rest of the bones were missing, and I think they found some skull fragments somewhere else. And it's there are a few cases like that. And so how does that happen? Like, does a, does a predator pick through the, the genes and just find certain bones and leave other ones or certain parts of, of the body and leave others? The, the scene didn't look like it was disturbed in any way. It looked like it looked pristine. This is this is the way this is what this is what had happened when he died and nothing had changed since that point. So how does it happen that you just have certain body parts that get placed in this area? And where they're appropriately. Mm-hmm. Leg bone in, in the pants. Yeah. I mean, like bizarre. <clears throat> and then just the, the people disappearing in out of thin air. You see them one second and they're gone the next, and then you either never find them 
or you find them way, you know, miles from where they should be in the time since the, the disappearance. So just some very strange aspects to those cases. And I think I think there may be a connection between the two. Well, well, I can all I think Polides thinks so too. And yeah. in one of his talks, um, and I think this was in a video posted to Sot some time ago. Uh, he he began by saying, "Don't read my book. Read this book on the Skinwalker Ranch." Uh, which was uh, this area that had been well-known for uh, all sorts of paranormal activity and possibly also cattle mutilations. Um, but that's what he seemed to be pointing to. Well, he didn't say, don't read my books. But it, yeah, Something like, if you read one book, read, the, read this other one. Yeah. It, before you read mine. It was, it was more like, you know, my research is, is only pointing in the direction of... Uh, what this material is is really kind of getting closer to. Um, so yeah, I I do think that there is a connection there, and uh, like everything else, we we can't kind of parse out all this information and, and think we have the whole enchilada. It's connected to a whole lot of other things. Well, if you think about just abductions in general, let's say human abductions, sometimes people get taken, and then they get found. You know, they get saved. Sometimes they get taken and they never come back. And could the same thing be happening? If so-called alien abductions happen, could there be cases where a person gets abducted and never comes back? Well, when you're describing that case in the, in the forest from uh, the missing 411 mm-hmm. book, uh, you know, it just sounds so similar to so many of the abduction cases that we hear about, where you know somebody uh, you know has this um, abduction experience and and they find themselves uh, woken up with their pants on backwards mm-hmm. or, you know... Wearing someone else's clothes. Wearing somebody else's clothes, uh, flipped around upside down their bed. They, and they look all, like they've been outside and, and they come in and their clothes mm-hmm. are full of stickers and burrs mm-hmm. and they're wet and it's like, and they, as far as they knew, they were in bed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, here's here's a crazy hypothesis. You know in Star Trek where they had the... What was it called? The, the transporter? Mm-hmm. And... You know, if you can imagine some some kind of crazy high tech aliens with these transporters, and you're just getting the getting the calculations just wrong a tiny bit, and then you have a faulty reinsertion into a trainee or or a software glitch. You know, yeah. we, we have those all the time. So why not? Why not? Oh, oh, we missed the left leg. Oh, oh well, you know, and everything else. But their version of Microsoft is just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Or they're just, they feel so omnipotent that uh, they quite often don't have to take the care to accurately reinsert the person. It's like, well, we'll approximate uh, their their transport. And there may be certain things, you know, that, that's just not really, you know, quite in the realm of, of, you know, what they actually think about or consider. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess if, you know, if we, if we kind of, you know, if we remove some farm animal from, uh, you know, from XYZ Farm, are we going to make sure to put it back in the exact place, exact friends, you know? <laughs> well, um, I think, well, anything other, anything more on on those evil, um, kind of scary? Well, we start wondering what's the point. Yeah. Oh, well, one more scary thing. I just wanted to say, for for any of the, like, Space Brother lovers bit, 
um, you know, love the Spaces Brothers. I'd just say, or for anyone that's not sure, just read John Keel's The Mothman Prophecies, because that's a scary book. And if, if you can read that book and then come away feeling like, oh, these, you know, these are big guys. This, this is awesome. These, like, these guys aren't scary. Then, well, maybe you are just fearless. But uh, it's a, it's kind of creepy when you when you read about it. And like we can get into like the Men in Black, all the strange, just um, the phone stuff was the freakiest was, was one of the freakiest for me. Just how many problems that John Keel had with his phone, with strange calls and just uh, harassment and just overall weirdness. It's We'd have to have an entire show just on, on that book to get into all the details. But Not to mention all the postal stuff. And remember, this was in, in the 60s, and you would think the technology wasn't to the point where you could mess with, with uh, mail, and his mail was constantly, constantly disrupted. Mm-hmm. His, you know, or, or a letter would be sent, but key parts would be missing. He would get letters when he was thinking about writing to somebody and get a letter back before he'd even sent it. It was bizarre. Well, uh, speaking of recommended books, um, I actually wanted to recommend a, a book of uh, fiction. It's a novel called Morning Star Pass, The Collapse of the UFO Cover-Up, which was written by a gentleman named Victor Norgard, uh, writing under a pseudonym. And um, it's a real page turner. Um, the gist of it is that uh, it's a look at how um, the whole alien presence um, subject has been suppressed in the U.S. especially. And uh, it's a bit of an adventure. Um, I was looking at Amazon this morning to just uh, read up on it again, and uh, it was funny. The, the most well-reviewed review was by C. Scott Littleton. Uh, who many of us know from his books 2600 Strand and Phase 2, which Red Pill Press now publishes. Um, Littleton called Morningstar Pass the war and peace of, of books in the genre of UFOs. And um, it covers a lot of the themes that uh, that we've been discussing. Um, and it's got it's got a whole sub-story of uh, cattle mutilations and the reactions of, of farmers in the story who are trying to find out uh, what the cause of it is. And it's like one of the best scenes in the book. Um, the cattlemen find uh, a UFO actually um, with a cow in its tractor beam, and they're kind of shooting off the UFO to get their cow back. Uh, pretty hilarious and horrific at the same time. But anyway, Morningstar Pass. Um, you can get it on Amazon, and uh, it's a great read. Well, just, just to put two more things in, just to, to highlight the uh, interest in these particular components of some unfortunate animal. Uh, John Keel, again in Mothman Prophecies, this is from Chapter 9, uh, talked about concurrent with the big UFO flap when he was there in 66, 67, was not just cows, but many, many, many dogs. Uh, he writes uh, from the October 1973 flap, uh, just prior was an epidemic of animal deaths throughout the Midwest and from Minnesota to Mississippi. Confounding the investigators was, again, the absence of blood and prints. Uh, even on warm days with the carcass freshly killed, no bleeding in or around the animal. 
No animal tracks have been detected, even in fresh snow. Now, here's really interesting. He also mentions four bloodless human bodies were found with slashed throats in a field near uh, Pleck Mountain. Don't know where that is. So he writes, I began to seriously wonder if blood and flesh were not vital ingredients in the mysterious transmogrification process. Did energies from the superspectrum need earthly biological materials to construct temporary entities? And then it does seem as if many UFO and monster sightings are staged as distractions, luring crowds of people to places like the TNT area while the mutilations and disappearances were taking place unnoticed a few miles away. And then he goes on to detail something really amazing. Uh, in March 67, a truly astonishing UFO, quote, attack, unquote, took place in West Virginia, apparently supporting the vampiric theories I was entertaining at the time. While other UFO investigators had been collecting endless descriptions of things in the sky, I was out examining dead animals in remote fields, pondering the real meaning behind the bloodless carcasses. On the night of March 5th, a Red Cross bloodmobile was traveling along Route 2, which runs parallel to the Ohio River. Um, the two nurses had been out all day collecting human blood, and now they were heading back to Huntington with a van full of fresh blood. The road was dark and cold, and there was very little traffic. As they moved along a particularly deserted stretch, there was a flash in the woods, and a large white glow appeared. The, effort, the object swooped over the van and stayed with it. Uh, one of the nurses rolled down the window and looked up, and he was horrified to see some kind of arm or extension being lowered from the luminous thing cruising only a few feet above the bloodmobile. It looked as if the flying object was trying to wrap a pincer-like device around the vehicle. He poured on the horses, but the object kept pace with them even, easily. Apparently, they were saved only by the sudden appearance of headlights from approaching traffic. As the other cars neared the object, retracted the arms and hastily flew off. So, did the UFO really intend to carry off the bloodmobile? Was it all a sham to prove the UFO's interest in blood? Uh, later, I tried to find out if any bloodmobiles had actually vanished anywhere. The Red Cross thought I was a bit nuts. <laughs> so, hmm. There was a book published recently. I haven't had a chance to read it, but um, some of the people on the Cassiopeia forum have read it and posted reviews called A Trojan Feast. can't remember the author off the top of my head, but it is about the presence of food in, the presence and use of food in um, all kinds of alien type phenomena. And he goes back, so first of all, he looks at the, the presence of food in all the types of cases reported in the last 70, 60 years. Um, because there are cases of aliens giving people drinks or little salty pancakes or whatever and then also of what aliens might eat and then he goes back into more kind of areas of mythology and folklore into fairy folklore and others and tries to put it all together and looks for the connections and with some interesting conclusions so as i said i haven't read it yet but i i want to it sounds pretty interesting and uh but uh, just a bit more on that before we move on to something else. Um, so when you when you look at it and see the similarities between the alien uh, UFO phenomena and fairy phenomena, first of all, this was an area that I think, well, Keel got into very early on, but the first guy that wrote a book that was really kind of influential in the, in the UFO field was Jacques Vallée's um, Passport to Magonia. 
And since then, several people have looked at the same things and kind of come to the same conclusions that uh, we talked about it a bit last week, that it looks like this phenomenon carries over between generations and it just changes its shape a bit, changes the clothes that, it's wear- that it wears. But, the, but at the root, something similar has been going on this whole time. And so the so-called UFO phenomenon isn't anything new. It's just that the the way that we've seen it and the form that it takes, the form in which we see it has been new and just kind of catered to the times and the technology of the times. So there are some pretty big implications when you look at it from that perspective and see just how long this has been going on, that it seems like a permanent aspect of of our planet, of humanity, of human culture and being in general. And that kind of just wide opens the field wide open um, with so many possible ways of looking at it and avenues of research. And unfortunately, very few people do look at it because it's it's crazy and it's fringe and it's out there. But I think I, I, we'll, we'll talk about it a bit more as the show goes on and just how many facets of knowledge and um, areas of, areas of research it and it goes into and that it has implications for and how it all ties together. So I really think this is one of the most important things that people could be looking into, but they don't. And so it's kind of disappointing, but it, it's kind of an adventure and a mystery at the same time. So it's fun. But um, last week's show, we kind of we like we dedicated it to to UFOs and aliens. We were very obvious about it, and we even titled the show like "Do Aliens Eat People." And we had a, we had some, we heard afterwards that we had um, a, a large boost in in listeners, um, not all of whom were from this planet apparently. So we we figured, I mean, we're we're increasing our listeners. Yeah, yeah, off planet. I guess I guess they're listening to us over on Zeta Reticuli or yeah. wherever. The numbers are the numbers. Yeah. That's so <laughs> so we thought, well, you know, we've got this new this new um, market, this new. New listenership, we might as well take advantage of it and take some advertising. So we thought, you know, what the hell? Let's just run one of their ads and see what they got to say. So, um, so we got this from a top secret transmission the other day, and uh, we'll just play it and see what it says. Ideal pastures, only the best quality ingredients. Award-winning service. These are what made AgriTerra Natural Farms the most trusted provider of a range of high-quality meats for eons. And now, those great-tasting cuts you've come to love are even better. In recent centuries, we here at AgriTerra have implemented a range of -of state-of-the-art innovations to not only make our products more delicious, but more affordable, too, no matter which galactic quadrant you're from. And as always, special discounts are available to all Zeta Reticulans. Our herds are not only thriving, their numbers have grown exponentially, providing an abundant, reasonably priced source of delicious nourishment. All this thanks to AgriTerra's most recent native educational campaigns designed by our ingenious team of social engineers. We ensure a healthy, abundant crop by overstimulating mating drives while simultaneously discouraging the use of contraception with our specially formulated fear of eternal damnation and hellfire. We know and respect our customers' tastes. That's why we've achieved a record-breaking 95% purity level by implementing a new global campaign to reduce the tainting effects tobacco smoking has on our products. Our latest flock of vegetarians is also coming along nicely. With any luck, the next litter will be teeming with 
non-smoking vegetarians, our best-selling product by far. But whatever your preferences, our humans are 100% terra-grown, naturally smoked for the duration of their lives with the highest quality industrial emissions, infused with a lifetime of natural, mouth-watering emotional flavorings, and aged to perfection in your choice of suburb, slum, cubicle, or mansion, all to get that classic flavor you've come to love. We've also introduced a brand new subscription service for our top-end line of Lucia wineries and breweries, producing the finest blends of immobilizing fear and abject terror. All our classic flavors are back in stock. Try our polite Canadian, a light, mild blend of social anxiety and repressed anger and resentment. Or, for the more daring, try our robust, signature, psychotic Israeli, a bitter brew bursting with pure hatred, accents of paranoia, and a full aroma of self-righteous fanaticism. This era's American harvest is sure to blow you away. Years of interracial strife, economic disparity, and stressful work have resulted in a complex intoxicating palate. Don't believe us? Listen to our customers. Great prices, great meat, what's not to love? We've been getting our food from Terra for centuries. Agriterra Natural, a division of the Galactic Overseers Co-op, offering the finest and free-range, grain-fed protein harvested from a fully domesticated population and genetically modified for optimal nutrition and high-fat content, delivered right to your species' mothership. There's a reason you've trusted us for millennia. Agriterra Naturals, the only choice. In the neighborhood? Stop by to enjoy all the benefits our Terra Spas have to offer. From a nourishing bath to a relaxing tour of your choice, multiple war theaters, zones of economic strife, and natural disasters. Wow, that was creepy. That was creepy. <laughs> Creepily accurate. <laughs> they have they have the guts, the gall, to advertise with the truth perspective. You know, now that makes me wonder because that sounds like the kinds of ads that you might hear on uh, on the radio for human corporations. Mm-hmm. I wonder, you know, just which way is the direction of causation there? Are, mm-hmm. are they copying us, or are we copying them? Good question. That's a very good question. <laughs> oh. Well, that kind of opens up a new door <laughs> to this discussion, I think, and that is how, how in fact, might we be food for the aliens? Well, what does that mean exactly? Are we, are we, filet uh, mignon? Do we get, uh, are people abducted for their, uh, their choice cuts? Or is there something else involved here that's a little more subtle? Both. Yeah, I, I'd say both, too. You know, it's an interesting question uh, because last uh, show we were, you know, we talked a bit about Kiel and, you know, looking at the UFO phenomenon in, in terms of uh, non-physical uh, ideas. And, you know, earlier today you know, we were just talking about kind of the more physical components. Mm-hmm. So it does seem important that, you know, there are physical and spiritual aspects uh, that that we need to look at. So we can kind of get a uh, we have an under or we can we can have a picture of 
a gruesome picture of what it looks like on you know, the physical level. But when we're looking, when we when we're asking what does the spiritual level mean, then I think you know that, like you said, it opens up the door for you know a, a whole a whole new topic. And you know what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Well, in the commercial, they had a startling revelation there about the, the louche wineries and breweries. Um, I wonder what those taste like. I don't want to know. Maybe I am a polite Canadian already. So, <laughs> but <laughs> but in some in abduction reports and other just you know other case studies of various of, of the these types of phenomena, there does seem to be an aspect of some kind of emotional feeding, in the sense that you might get abductees who say it just felt like they were like draining me of my of my emotion or just or feeding on it in some way like a, an emotional vampire type of thing now even that term emotional vampire we use that in it's kind of a, a phrase that some people use to describe human interpersonal relationships that some people are just a drain now the way i think about it if you just look at the human level and like we talked about last week with psychopaths if you look at someone like a sadist they do there is something about that act of sadism that gives them something it gives them some kind of pleasure some kind of it it it, uh, it feeds some kind of um appetite mm-hmm. and so you'll have a, a person who will torture a person for no good reason you, i mean what's the i can't think of a good reason for torturing someone you know there are pseudo reasons that some torturers give like those in the cia but that these types of, of just barbaric, dis, disgusting acts of torture, some people get off on it. They enjoy it. They get something out of it. Wasn't there an interview with some of the uh, volunteer Ukrainian battalions? And uh, I think that was on the post on thought. I was just going to mention you know, that. Well. That uh, they were interviewing these guys, and they basically brought it down to the idea that they love that sense of power. It makes them feel alive. It makes them feel awake, and they crave it. Mm-hmm. So there's some sick stuff if you think about just humans. Now, if you think about that same dynamic on a higher level, if we do have these beings who are on a higher level than humans, just as humans are on a higher level in certain senses than animals, if you imagine these beings with this great, this kind of super high-tech technology as well as a different sort of being than humanity, so it's, it's like they exist in some kind of different realm in a sense, then just scale that up and what are the possibilities? Mm-hmm. What would a, if, let's, let's just use the word angel. We've, angel has been in the, in the human vocabulary for a long time, but that people think of angels as these higher types of beings. What if there are psychopathic angels? Now, angels doesn't, I mean, it's a bad word just because people think of, you know, these flowery little happy... Psychopathic angels are probably yeah. called devils. Yeah, yeah. So think about it in terms of de- devils, demons. About these these higher beings who are totally psychopathic and maybe even more psychopathic than the psychopaths that we experience on planet Earth. Well, and, yeah. I, no, I think it's a... I think this whole feeding thing is... Um, we can really pare it down to human beings as well. We have factory farming uh, where animals are largely made to suffer uh, before they die. Um, And then you have a whole movement of of people who are farming animals with an appreciation for them 
uh, with a respect for them and for the sustenance that they give. And what does it really come down to? Uh, we can't exist without food, without energy. Um, and if, if it's correct that uh, people who've been abducted have been fed upon in a way energetically, uh, it's through fear. It's through uh, negative feelings, which have a negative vibration. And so I don't think it's such a leap to think that there may be some technology or some way to extract this this energy via emotions um, that can be fed upon. Yeah, and you know, we we really don't know, you know, what type of technology there there could be, but we can, like we were like you were saying earlier, you know, we we can identify these feeding mechanisms, um, you know, from psychopaths, but also just in you know our own daily interaction with others, um, you know, it seems that society has just been, you know, programmed with, uh, with this narcissistic, uh, family dynamic where, you know, we, we, we don't know how to, um, function, uh, we don't know how to express our, express our emotions properly. Uh, you know, we're covertly aggressive and in all these ways, these, these are feeding, uh, mechanisms mm-hmm. and, you can you can even you can observe this and you can identify it when it's happening, um, and in uh, in the Wave series uh, written by Laura Nyetchek, uh she writes about this. And uh, one of the early observations that she had was uh, taking her daughter to school and observing these cliques of uh, of kids that would kind of you know gravitate towards each other. And you know within these groups, there seemed to be you know, a, a, a dominator in each in each group, and and it seemed like they were kind of like sucking the energy from from others, and you know they they kind of you know they had stronger posture, and you know they were they were feeding basically. Um, so the question is, you know, where does that uh, energy go? Um, is it being absorbed through abductions? You know, maybe partially, but you know, it does seem that there's uh, a wider component to to this as well. And when we look at just the the, the way society is set up, there is this hierarchy. Um, and you know, when we look at politics and the way you know, governments are are organized, um, there's massive, massive uh, feeding going on mm-hmm. and massive suffering. You know, where is all that? Uh, energy going. Yeah, it does seem to have an intent. Um, if if negative emotion is the goal, whether it be anger or envy or um, suffering, despair, there seems to be almost uh, a concerted engineering to create that situation as widely as possible. And again, where is all that energy going? If you think about human farms, well, I mean... <laughs> farms that humans run, we feed animals in certain ways. We give them certain certain types of food, certain injections. We, we tag them in certain ways. We watch their movements. We arrange their, their living environment and their social structure in such a way as to make what we consider an ideal farm, an ideal source of food. And they're in the, the, the stock, the, the livestock, whatever animal it is, 
we totally control their lives. Their lives are totally directed to that end. And it's not, and we, we design it too so yeah. that they can't live outside that environment. So mm-hmm. they're domesticated, i.e. programmed to, you know, rely on that, on that system. And you, you can apply that to, to our, you know, our cities. Mm-hmm. It's like a big domesticated uh, farm. Like Terra Naturals. So, well, with that in mind, I mean, it, it might be a good thought procedure for, for anyone that doesn't really consider this or haven't really considered this as a you know, viable possibility to just do a kind of reverse Pascal's wager and say, okay, well, if this is true, what might the implications be? Let's just say if it's true, just get rid of any preconceived notions and just have a little fun and say, if this is true, let me look at it. Then if I scale this up a notch, what is it? What could it be about human society in general that is arranged and organized in such a way as to meet ends that might not be for our best advantage and might be to the advantage of the of the alleged beings doing the organization? Mm-hmm. So what might it be? I mean, if we look at human society, you shape the way they eat. Yeah. Well, you shape the, there. Yeah, there could be any number of options. So first of all, let's take food. So you shape the way they eat. So. <laughs> Low fat. Yeah. Lots of grains. So, so right there we say, okay, well, maybe we're not eating the right foods. So then you look into it, and, I mean, the obvious conclusion, if you just start looking into it, is that, no, humans are not eating the right types of food, mm-hmm. for us at least, and that there are much more um, ideal diets, specifically the ketogenic diet. Mm-hmm. But then you take... Um, the controller of, of, you know, then you go into social engineering, but you make this diet, this uh, low-fat, high-grain diet, uh, that's the one you propagate across the the social structure, and that's how you train your doctors, it's how you train through advertising, it's Mm -hmm. how you train, and all of a sudden, you know, the society will do it on its own. You know, your work is done. Same with smoking. Mm -hmm. The, The Health and Wellness Hour had a bit about water fluoridation recently. And uh, I was reminded of a passage I had read in um, Jim Mars's Rise of the Fourth Reich, uh, where the Nazis intentionally fluoridated the water precisely because they knew uh, that the people drinking it would be under their sway, uh, that they would be more easily controlled. That's what the fluoride does to the brain. It depresses pituitary function and it it, uh, damages your cognitive abilities. And as far as we know, the U.S. is the only country in the world that purposely fluoridates its water. So what does that say Canada about the does. U.S.? No. Okay. Well, yeah, same thing. They go fighting back and forth about it. But uh, the other thing, too, is is you purposefully, if you're looking for emotional output, then you purposefully uh, educate as best you can the society to view everyone else outside of your little circle as an enemy. So you have constant inputs of suspicion, anxiety. Uh, if you're really lucky, you get yourself a war. Plenty of suffering to go around there. Mm-hmm. Well, the advantage that we have uh, in you know farming animals is that they don't think. You know, we, we can we can put up a pen, and you know they're not going to have any cognitive ability to escape that pen. And you think we're any different? <laughs> well, well, we have. Some capacity, some capacity. Yeah, some capacity to think relative to, <laughs> to right, the animals. farm animals, yeah. but that's that's what that's what I was getting at was that um, you know our cognitive capacity has been pretty much squashed, 
you know, there's probably a very small percentage of the population that, you know, actively thinks. So, um, so it's interesting to look at in that, in, you know, what we were talking about Harrison to, you know, try to think about the implications and to consider if this was true, if we are being farmed, then something that would need to happen would be to really, you know, diminish that, that cognitive ability. Mm -hmm. Because if we look, well, a farmer's worst nightmare is a, a flock of self-aware, intelligent um, chickens who are able to see what's going on, plan their escape, and the coop. Yeah, exactly. So naturally, we want our chickens to be dumb, and we want them to be totally controlled. We don't want them thinking about them. We don't even want them knowing that they're in prison. It should be just normal for them. And make a life a comfortable life, yeah. and want them to enjoy their captivity. Mm-hmm. Well, well, that's uh, arguable. Yeah, because farm life isn't always. Well, I don't. I think farm life in general isn't that um, pleasant or comfortable. We've just perfected the art of putting animals in totally abject conditions. Yeah, I was actually <laughs> thinking of you know rural farms. Yeah, not, not a real the, farm, not the factory farms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are pretty miserable. Okay, so so all of this begs the question. Uh, obviously, we have some people um, who have or attempting to, or working very hard to fly the coop. Uh, we, we do know some things. Um, we're becoming more self-aware, and I guess that process never ends. Uh, what is it about those people, those Carla Turners of the world, uh, those Laura Nightyachics of the world, who um, that makes them... Uh, self-aware in such a way so as to not only not want to be food, know that they, they have been food or, and can be food, but to share that impetus, uh, that understanding with others. Well, the first thing would be just to be willing to admit it. Mm -hmm. you know, the first thing is to just say, yes, this is, you know, if you want to call it a Pascal's wager, let's take it and act accordingly. I think we can even go back to our discussion of Dabrowski and different levels of people and different levels of internal values and intellectual and emotional capacities, what a person is able to see, and then what that... Oh, we lost sound. Just when it was getting good. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Well, a co-host is saying that, well, it looks like it might might just be, okay, no, we got sound. Okay. Yeah, we're good. Sorry, false alarm there. <laughs> Maybe a delay. Yeah, I think it was a, an individual problem as opposed to collective. I was just saying about Dabrowski, um, and, you know, we don't even have to think about it in terms of Dabrowski, just human nature, where certain people seem to have more capacity for what we could call development. And those features tend to be universal among those types of people. And so part of that is a love for truth and just wanting to know what is really going on. And then once, when someone knows something, knows the truth about some circumstance or some, some set of circumstances or facts, there will be a 
um, an association with certain emotional components. And that's where the values come in, where we might conclude that this state of affairs is wrong and that there is a possibility for a better state of affairs. So if things continue on as they are now, things will be just as bad, if not worse. But here is the solution. Here is a way out. And here is a way to overcome these limitations that we have had and that we've been living under. And so there's a, an element of, of truth, consciousness, and conscience where, first of all, we want to know without any, um, without any self-lies or you know, self-calming, I just want to know the truth. What is really going on? And then what follows from that? What do I do after? What does, what does knowing that truth imply for my future actions, for example? And there will usually only be one course in, a, in general terms, and that is not to, not to accept that reality as it is, to see it for what it is, but to know that it's not acceptable, that there are better ways. I mean, because you, if, you were, if you're in prison or if you're one of uh, Plato's guys in caves and you find out what's really going on, then you say, well, okay, well, that's just the way things are. You know, that's just our government. Love it or leave it, right? So, no, that's not a, that's not a, a choice from conscience. That's just capitulation. That's just giving in. And who knows, maybe you're, maybe some people are a perfect part of the system and don't want anything else. And, of course, that's their free will. They can, they can do that. And then you have Cypher from The Matrix. Yeah. Going, I loved it there. Send me back. But there are other ways. Mm-hmm. And that implies that there are other energetic ways of feeding. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, getting back to Dubrowski, uh, and other literature, uh, it's communicating through honesty. Uh, it's it's asking for what's wanted or needed, um, as opposed to manipulating and uh, drawing out energy from others in a in a dishonest way, in a way that's covert. Um, and if that's true on our level. You know, if people with normal relationships reflect that ideal and, and that idea, then it's probably true on other levels, too. Um, we don't really have too much uh, information regarding what we might call positive ETs or ETs that don't feed on us. Um, or maybe we do, actually. Um, but uh, the idea is to live in truth as you were saying, Harrison, and and pursue that line as far as you can take it. One way to go with that is to say what seems to be the goal and then go in opposition to it. So going back to what you said, if the goal is a lot of negative emotion, suspicion, anger, whatever, then to foster conditions where those emotions don't arise. So by being honest and expressing emotion, you sort of neutralize the negativity of the situation, and that's maybe kind of way of starving the system. Yeah, how to starve the system? <laughs> Actually, um, so Carlos Castaneda has a very interesting uh, passage along those lines, and um, probably many of our listeners are are familiar with it, um, but it seems apropos. Um, and he begins. Um, Whenever doubts plague you to a dangerous point, do something pragmatic about it. Turn off the light, pierce the darkness, 
find out what you can see. The sorcerers of ancient Mexico saw the predator. And we'll get into what that predator means. They called it the flyer because it leaps through the air. It is not a pretty sight. It is a big shadow, impenetrably dark, a black shadow that jumps through the air. Then it lands flat on the ground. The sorcerers of ancient Mexico were quite ill at ease with the idea of it when it made its appearance on Earth. They reasoned that man must have been a, a complete being at one point with stupendous insights, feats of awareness that are mythological legends nowadays. And then everything seems to disappear, and we have now a sedated man. What I'm saying is that what we have against us is not a simple predator. It is very smart and organized. It follows a methodical system to render us useless. Man, the magical being that he is destined to be, is no longer magical. He's an average piece of meat. There are no more dreams for man but the dreams of an animal who is being raised to become a piece of meat trite, conventional, and basilic. The only alternative left for mankind is discipline. Discipline is the only deterrent. But by, but by discipline, I don't mean harsh routines. I don't mean waking up every morning at 5.30 and throwing cold water on yourself until you're blue. Sorcerers understand discipline as the capacity to face with serenity odds that are not included in our expectations. For them, discipline is an art the art of facing infinity without flinching, not because they are strong and tough, but because they are filled with awe. Sorcerers say that discipline makes the glowing coat of awareness unpalatable to the flyer. The result is that the predators become bewildered, and inedible glowing coat of awareness is not part of their cognition, I suppose. After being bewildered, they don't have any recourse other than refraining from continuing their nefarious task. If the predators don't eat our glowing coat of awareness for a while, it'll keep on growing. Simplifying this matter to the extreme, I can say that sorcerers, by means of their discipline, push the predators away long enough to allow their glowing coat of awareness to grow beyond the level of the toes. Once it goes beyond the level of the toes, it grows back to its natural size. The sorcerers of ancient Mexico used to say that the glowing coat of, coat of awareness is like a tree. If it is not pruned, it grows to its natural size and volume. As awareness reaches levels higher than the toes, tremendous maneuvers of perception become a matter of course. The grand trick of the sorcerers of ancient times was to burden the flyer's mind with discipline. They found out that if they taxed the flyer's mind with inner silence, the foreign installation would flee, giving to any one of the practitioners involved in this maneuver the total certainty of the mind's foreign origin. The foreign installation comes back, I assure you, but not as strong, and a process begins in which the fleeing of the flyer's mind becomes routine until one day it flees permanently. A sad day indeed. That's a day when you have to rely on your own devices, which are nearly zero. There's no one to tell you what to do. There's no mind of foreign origin to dictate the imbecilities you're accustomed to. This is the toughest day in a sorcerer's life. For the real mind that belongs to us, the sum total of our experience after a lifetime of domination has been rendered shy, insecure, and shifty. Personally, I would say that the real battle of sorcerers begins at this moment. The rest is merely preparation.
Discipline taxes the foreign mind no end. So, through their, through their discipline, sorcerers vanquish the foreign installation. The flyer's mind flees forever when a sorcerer succeeds in grabbing onto the vibrating force that holds us together as a conglomerate of energy fields. If a sorcerer maintains it, that pressure long enough, the flyer's mind flees in defeat. When one is torn by internal struggle, it is because down in the depths of, one, in, of oneself, one knows that one is incapable of refusing the agreement that an indispensable part of the self, the glowing core of awareness, is going to serve as an incomprehensible source of nourishment to incomprehensible entities. And another part of one will stand against the situation with all its might. The sorcerer's revolution is that they refuse to honor agreements in which they did not participate. Nobody ever asked me if I would consent to be eaten by beings of a different kind of awareness. My parents just brought me into this world to be food, like themselves. And that's the end of the story. So, uh, there are so many things that, that are implied and suggested in this um, bit of esoteric literature um, by Carlos Castaneda. Um, and one is that people for a long time have acknowledged that their emotions, uh, their scatteredness, their inability to, to focus um, have led to their being vulnerable to forces that have uh, fed upon them. Well, for, for Carlos Castaneda, it's kind of a mixed bag for me. I think the, the passage is really, is really good and the way I, but the way I tend to look at Carlos Castaneda is like he's a, like a novelist that writes really good stuff that has all kinds of uh, deeper meanings and, and applications to, to wider fields of knowledge. But a couple things. First of all, he himself was kind of a wretched human being. So, but, um, but I'd like to, so I see it more as like he's talking in symbols and analogies for real phenomena and gets pretty close to a lot of the heart of the matter. So I think there's a lot of value in the in that passage in particular and, and others in his books. Um, he has another passage where he also talks about the glowing code of awareness that um, for the average human being, it has been eaten down to the toes, the idea being that they leave just enough to sort of keep the human animated, like up and moving around and doing the basics. And that... Another maneuver, if you want to go on with with his uh, illustration, is to cause ridiculous problems, situations, and that, uh, according to Castaneda, it was to create flares of emotion, of frustration, of anger, whatever, and that these would be what was consumed. And I thought that was a really interesting picture. Well, the um, that whole concept of the glowing code of awareness is, is interesting. It... Um, yeah, you know, basically what I think he's saying is that in a way that you know, the more that we're aware and uh, the more knowledge that we have, the more we can protect ourselves from, um, you know, it, it can apply to you know, very ordinary, normal circumstances, but we might also apply it to uh, the more extraordinary con uh, concepts that we're also talking about today. And... Uh, it, tie, it ties into uh, this 
this other idea that Castaneda is talking about, which is this foreign installation. So this idea, he, he also expands on it, uh, calling it the predator's mind, and that the predators gave us their mind, and that there is something within us that basically connects uh, connects us with the predator, and um, and you know we we can think about it in terms of polarization, uh, where we adopt to uh, pathological thinking, uh, but it seems it even goes deeper than that because the even without this infected thinking, we still have all these uh, faulty uh, mechanisms inherent in our psychology. Um, it could be, you know, the adaptive unconscious. And when we look at the system one and system two type of thinking where, um, you know, there's an automatic type thinking and behavior that pretty much rules us every part of the day. And it can be combated with uh, with more critical examination of our lives. Um, so I think those those things all kind of tie in with one another. And mm-hmm. and ultimately, you know, the more we are applying that that critical thinking and that building of our knowledge base, you know, the more uh, protection that we have, the more we're identifying our predator's mind. Um, yeah, I think we should get into that a bit more. The if this is a if this is a true picture of the state of the human condition, then what what avenues of protection do we have? What is our escape plan essentially from the human farm? I think that a few things are needed, and I think you mentioned them, Shane. First of all, a radical change in worldview, because we don't look at the world in such a way as to as for these things to be obvious to us or for us to even accept them as as possibilities. So the first thing is just gaining that knowledge to to totally change your worldview and then what comes from that probably well probably even more important is that change in being. Now that's a very nebulous term. It's kind of like golden code of awareness. Well what what exactly are these things? Well, this is essentially what we were talking about in the Dabrowski show. And then from that, when you when there has been this radical transformation within oneself and of the way that one sees the world, then there is a an equally radical transformation of how we live in the world, the actions that we take and the decisions, choices that we make. And I think that um, the Apostle Paul actually had a pretty good understanding of this. Um, I've, I read a book recently. We'll be talking about it a bit. It's uh, called Practices of Power by a guy named Robert Moses. And so he gets into Paul's worldview, which is in certain ways typical of an ancient worldview. Now, so for not just Paul, for but for the majority of ancient cultures, they looked at the world in a particular way. Now, this worldview has totally, almost well, almost completely been eradicated um, starting with the Enlightenment, and well, there 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 have been trends for for hundreds of years, and certain certain thinkers and certain other trends that have led us to the to where we are today, where the official worldview is materialism, being that the only thing that exists is matter, and that there is no no God, no higher existence, no higher possibilities, no no spirituality, no spiritual realms or realities, no spiritual beings. No higher beings, no parapsychology, etc. 
So the worldview itself has just been totally, well, in my view, corrupted. I think the Enlightenment in many ways was uh, the era of unenlightenment, where we actually lost a bit of knowledge about reality and the cosmos in general. We lost half. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. They basically cut away half of half of creation. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, when when looking at this material, uh, the uh, Paul's letters and and you know his uh, his work, uh, a lot of people might be dismissive because well, wasn't Paul you know the creator of the church? You mm-hmm. know, and and so you know we kind of look at it as at the lens of how we perceive the church today mm-hmm. and and can easily dismiss uh what he was saying. But I think I think if Paul, you know, were alive today, he'd he'd be pretty hor- horrified uh, you know, what the what the Christian church is and mm-hmm. what it represents. Mm-hmm. And uh particularly because his uh his knowledge base is almost absent from you know from, from the actual teachings. Well let's get into that a bit. There's the, the, Paul uses some words in his letters that are pretty interesting. He talks about the powers and principalities. And so he uses words like powers, angels, demons, authorities, lordships, thrones, principalities, uh, rulers, Satan, the elements, sin, death, and flesh. Uh, so pretty much all those first words sound like um, politicians, what we call politicians. But Paul wasn't referring to to any kind of earthly ruler. He wasn't referring to to an emperor or a, a proconsul or um, or governor or anything like that. The he was referring to spiritual realities, spiritual beings. And and at that point of time, that that would have been understood. Yeah, because the that part of that ancient worldview was this this view that there are other beings, spiritual beings, who have a direct influence on events on earth, on human actions and events, and um, possibly a decidedly negative one. Yeah, and on that, just on that point, that's also something that's completely missing today. You know, when we think of uh, spirituality and what it means today, it's it's mostly all, you know, couched in fluffy, feel-good terms, or, or the higher, the spiritual realities, the higher spiritual realities are all just these positive, you know, feel good things. I'm a spiritual person, la da da. And you know, this negative, um, this idea that there's this negative component to these higher realities is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is very lacking. But Paul was um, he was also atypical in certain ways because if you look at the the Jewish literature of the time, which is the environment in which. Uh, Paul grew up and the the knowledge base that he had, they were concerned with these rulers, these spiritual um, demon-type entities that control human affairs. And so they were very interested in who, what the names of these guys were and, and you know, how to protect from certain ones or the other certain relationships with these specific dudes. Paul wasn't really uh, concerned with any of that. He just used all these very general, just very general terms to describe these. Well, first of all, just on the, the topic of political, the political names that he gives them, I think that's kind of a clue, in the sense that well, so so he needs he needs he's using words to describe these powers, and the words that he chooses are the names given to to political rulers. A governing structure. Governing structure. So that's just an interesting thing to keep in mind. But for him. The, the so-called powers, 
they pervade all aspects of the cosmos and human existence. That's a quote from Moses' book. Now, so for Paul, this was a cosmic phenomenon. It it um, applicable to every facet of life. So it wasn't like I mean, we, you might read books on exorcism or demons today from a from either a secular or a religious or Catholic perspective, and you get a very particular view of what demons are, for example. So these are the the scary minions of Satan that possess people and, and stuff like that. And it kind of applied just at the individual level. Yeah. You know, he, uh, you don't really hear much about how you know it could apply to the political realms or you know, more social, mm-hmm. the macro social level. Mm-hmm. But the perfect possession would be unnoticed. Mm-hmm. But for Paul, this applied to every aspect of reality. And so there's one word that he uses for the powers, which is the elements, and he compares. Uh, well, we'll skip the kind of biblical exegesis, but he basically says that the elements, that means the elements of the cosmos, the four elements, are um, basically subject to these powers. They can be diverted and co-opted in certain ways that to, to have negative effects on, on life, life on Earth. So from the very bottom, from the very elements that make up our world to the very top, Everything is pervaded by a, a certain influence by these by these beings by these powers. So that's a pretty radical idea that is um, totally foreign, I think, to most to most people on the planet today. Now, there's of course there are certain ideas um, that are very similar because of course there's a huge percentage of the population that does believe in spiritual beings or demons. Um, pretty much most major religions have these ideas. Now, whether a lot of people today actually believe them, we, you know, we'd have to get into some statistics or surveys or whatever. But the, some of the ideas are there, but the actual details and implications seem to be missing, like you were saying, Shane. Well, they've narrowed the, they've narrowed the focus, yeah. as you said. I mean, the closest you might be able to get would be the more primitive cultures who, who practice what is, I think, the, the term in the field is called animism. Mm-hmm. The idea that that there is life force in everything from stones to trees to whatever, and uh, that can be interacted with, that can influence you. You, um, in certain conditions, might want to influence it, but there is the idea that there is an entire unseen world mm-hmm. that coexists along with the, uh, the world that you can see. Well, you know, this, this reminds me a lot of Malachi um, <laughs> uh, Martin's Hostage to the Devil, and you know, one of them most compelling this is a book of course about um uh priests and and other figures religious figures who helped exercise people of uh, demonic spiritual attachments but he prefaces the story uh with uh, a kind of supernatural scene in japan during world war ii or actually it was in china and um where somebody is clearly kind of experiencing some some weird possession and then follows that up with a description of Japanese soldiers going on an absolute rampage, uh, ISIS style. Mm-hmm. Um, and the implication there was that, uh, in some form or another, all of these, uh, soldiers were on some kind of macro level possessed by something 
that was compelling them to act in, in the most grotesque and, and brutal ways. Uh, so just another little kind of hint of insight into how uh, these forces may be acting through people on a larger scale. Hmm. Well, I think that we can look at it. There, There's kind of always a, a range of, of phenomena and the different ways that they manifest. So I think we can we can accept the idea of, of possession, like a direct possession. But there are more subtle ways, too. And I think that this comes down to more matters of subtle influence. Mm-hmm. And, and how do I put it? Subtle influence taking advantage of certain um, habits or tendencies or constitutional characteristics of us as humans. Mm-hmm. And we can again on the human level, we can see this just in terms of of, of manipula- sorry manipulation, just manipulating someone into doing something that uh, that you want them to do. I mean, you might be able to um, personify or allegorize that as a type of possession, where the the other person is somehow possessing your mind in order to do something like a, an evil hypnotist. And who knows, there may even be some kind of reality to that. Mm-hmm. But on on the surface, it's like, uh, well, let's just look at that that in terms of manipulation, manipulating what's already there to get something that the other person wants. So in, uh, in well, Paul would describe these in terms of um, what, he, what he called sin, death, and flesh. And so the flesh, um, he uses that word a lot, and by that it kind of means like in a, in a human fashion. It's kind of like that's a bad thing. Like um, it's our human condition that we're conditioned in, a, in to act in certain ways that are not ideal. Now, would you say that that's um, the drives like more materialistic drives? Right? Well, just yeah, everything everything about humans as they naturally are. So, for Paul to be in a human body was to basically be screwed. No, um, it's just a that's just a human condition. We're we're in a certain place, and um, there are there are better options mm-hmm. and um, greener pastures to to go to. But there, well, for me, I think the way I look at it, for Paul, like the flesh and sin and death were the human condition in the sense of like primary integration. So all those things about about human nature that are pervasive in our culture and, and in most most humans as uh, the dominant directing force. So from biology and society, just these these forces that control us and determine our behaviors, that uh, that are based just on the levels at which they're at. Those low levels. There are higher levels, but anything that comes from those levels strictly is just is is not going to be. The, the ideal. It's not going to, to get us anywhere. It's not going to get us out of the farm. Mm-hmm. And so there's this influence that we're under, this uh, this this human condition that that leads to the symbolic death, where the where we well symbolically die. There's nothing left. There's there's no possibility for further growth. There's no possibility for let's you know you can call it to use a religious term eternal life. That we are that we're stuck in this death culture this, this uh, deathly way of being and way of acting where there's no, we're not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere higher than we were, where we're at or where we were. We're just going along the same level and then then we disintegrate and, and die. And the way that we get there is what the, the word Paul uses is amarchia, sin. 
Now, again, we've had 2,000 years of of Christian dogmatics and and ideas accreting onto onto these words. So whenever we use them, there's all kinds of associations that we naturally have with them. But Paul's sin was a corrupting influence. So the um, now if we think about it in terms of ponderology, poneros is a, a corrupting evil. It's the evil that corrupts a person. Um, it di- diverts them. It co-opts them. And so our lives, uh, the, the the environment that we live in, is structured in such a way that we that we are under the influence of sin, which which Paul referred to as one of the powers. So he personified sin as this force, this active force in the world, influencing people, and uh, in, in not only our individual lives but politically, socially, and in relation to the cosmos in general. On all these levels, we are by acting on this certain level. Uh, by acting um, based on these certain stimuli from from below and from the world around us, we're not getting anywhere. And basically, so th- this uh, to be living in sin, so to speak, mm-hmm. would be uh, acting on you know, those forces that you know keep us separated from one another, mm-hmm. that keep us disconnected from you know our uh, our truly human capacities. Um, reading, reading in, uh, reading, I just started reading the, uh, Moses' book, The Practices of Power, and, um, it was really fascinating to, uh, kind of read through his, his terms, because just given the, the, the show topic, there's so much, uh, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a big relationship to the terms he uses and, and just the concepts of, uh, you know, extraterrestrials, uh, he, he talks about superterrestrial powers and uh, alien forces, uh, alien gods, and you know it might not have been uh, in in the same way that we think in those terms, but the the relationship is is clearly there. Uh, and um, one of the one of the uh, excerpts that I came across too was that uh, uh, Paul he saw that. Um, so he he discerned that there is a internal inclination towards evil in humans, and kind of how that is is the same idea of Cassinata's concept of the predator's mind. So there is this installation in us that you know drives us uh, to kind of disconnect from one another, to uh, disconnect from ourselves and and, and our capacities. Um, so it's it, yeah, it's a fascinating book, and I'd recommend people checking it out. But the, Paul also Paul also offers the the way out. Mm-hmm. Now, so we'll get into that because these are these can just be ideas for people, but if they are realities, they have actual implications for not only everyday behaviors, but you know everything else about just living life. It is a part of life. So the book is called Practices of Power because for Paul, he doesn't really give any extended treatise on the powers and, uh, like I said, like their names and who they are and what they do. They're these ideas that only really come out when you look at the the practices, the actual actions and behaviors that a that a community engages in, either to well individuals and a community, either to um, to guard against the influence of those powers or to um, to expose yourself to to the negative influences. 
So one of the ways that's, that Paul mentioned being exposed to them was idol worship. Paul was a good, a good Jew. And so what, but what he meant by idol worship was these for when people worship something that is lower than the highest. So he saw like the worship of idols as the worship of the elements, the worship of, of something that doesn't, that isn't the, the totality and um, universality of, of everything. For him, the only thing wor- worthy of worship was that, that totality. And so we can, again, we can see that in different terms when we, when we worship, when for us the ultimate is something on a, on a low level, if we, if we are um, slaves to materiality or to, to some angelic being like some space brother, some alien or some ideology or whatever, then we're slaves to it. And the only real way out is to, is to not be under the power of, of anything like that. It's not, it's not be under the power of anything except oneself through, Paul would say through Christ. <laughs> we might be able to, to get into what that, what that actually means. But, um, but the practices, the opposite practices, the ones that actually protect, he, he lets at least, well, he, he describes at least three in his letters. Um, these are the ones focused on by Moses in his book. And those are um, preaching, baptism, and church discipline. So again, these words, we hear them and automatically think, oh, I know what those are, and that's nonsense. I mean, because even when I hear those words, I'm just like, oh, those words again? But, but what do they actually mean? For bap- baptism for Paul was participating in the death of, the death and ascension of Christ, whatever that was for Paul. Because Paul never gives a biography about Jesus. He just talks about Christ. It's always this kind of like... Uh, spiritual being for Paul, it seems. When you look at what baptism is, and you kind of stri- you know, take away the religious connotations, and mm-hmm. you know, and see what those elements are made up of, and um, basically, it's it's being stripped naked and reborn. And you know, we have have these uh, shamanic ideas even in this, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. being stripped to the bone, um, which uh, Laura Nyetchek writes about too. And you know, it's this it's this peeling of layers of basically these lies, looking at these lies and burning them off with truth by looking at the truth and having, you know, there's this uh, reverence for just what the truth is. And, you know, we, we think about um, maybe like, you know, Bible thumpers saying, this is the truth. And well, no, you know, it's, it's, we're talking about like the objective truth and, uh, I think when you know when Paul's talking about using truth, you know, as a means of you know uh, offering this this protection and a way to act against uh, or or for yourself, um, act for yourself um, to move away from these powers to escape. Um, you know, he is talking about uh, objective reality. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this reminds me a lot of um, Moraviev and the Gnosis books, uh, and and he's quite adamant about not you know, living in truth and not lying. And he also describes the physiological process of burning, uh, which is very interesting because you read about it, it's this abstract idea of burning off lies, uh, burning off the, the faults, dying uh, in a certain way, mm-hmm. um, but you know, it, honestly, 
if, if you've ever um, been confronted by a truth or um, or have experienced something where you're kind of facing your own uh, lies and your own your own thoughts that are more connected to uh, ego or or, or other um, personality appendages that don't really serve you uh, to grow, uh, you you may have experienced a real burning on the back of your neck. Uh, it's um, and it's it's difficult. Uh, you know, I feel it now, <laughs> uh, but it, it's a sensation. And um, I mean, I don't, I can't say for absolute certain that there's a one-to-one correlation between this experience of burning in the back of one neck, one's neck, uh, in in confronting things. But um, there there does seem to be a, a real objective process involved in all this that that uh Muraviev and, and now Paul seem to be describing. I think that that struggle that you're talking about also relates to uh what how Paul saw worship, which we were talking about Harrison, and there's um you know, we the the concept of worship, specifically worshiping of idols, you know, it has a very uh old uh sentiment about it because you know who who really worships anymore, and um, but it, it's basically in terms of you know the attachments that we have to different ideas, the the, the different attention that we give to you know uh, our, and you know how how hard you know we can kind of latch onto those things, and you know even it, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with truth when mm-hmm. when we're attached when we're attached in that way, or perhaps in. If you talk about attachments, it may be attachment to anything that distorts, mm-hmm. whether it's an idea or it could be a hobby, it could be anything mm-hmm. that, that brings distortion and imbalance to your life. Mm-hmm. Identification with you know modern day idols or, or rock stars and and American Idol, American mm-hmm. Idol, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm, so it, it you know it's like kind of what you're getting at. I think Carolyn mm-hmm. is that um, it's. It's like an area of focus. And not only that, it seems like we are conveniently provided. I mean, anybody who goes to an office and stands around the water cooler on Monday morning, you know where the focus is. Mm-hmm. You know, the last football game, the last whatever, but that's that's the idol. Thus the importance of true baptism. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, Paul sees baptism as this symbolic, um, symbolic act that recreates the what you guys have been just describing this process of of burning of death of of coming to a new life dying to the world as paul put it once to positive positive disintegration a death of the old false personality of the foreign installation of the predator's mind of the just vast long evolutionary history of the human biological machine and all that, and the way that influences and forms human consciousness, a death of that for something new to be to to grow out of it, and so part of that death involves a death to all those identifications and all those um, so all those things that we've been focusing on so much that really don't matter in the big picture. All the things that you think of that are you. Yeah, when they aren't. And they aren't. And they're actually probably those aspects of our social life that are that are created and implemented by the 
the people farming or the things farming the human farm. Mm -hmm. These are the things that to keep us distracted and focused on farm life to, to hinder us from realizing what's really going on and possibly escape, possibly get out from under the influence of, of the, uh, the powers and principalities. So two of the other, of the other practices were preaching. So all preaching really is, is well, preaching the gospel, preaching the good news. And what is the good news that there is this, this knowledge, this reality to the structure of the cosmos, that there is that there is a way out. That you know, for Paul, God would or he would say that God made a promise to to humanity and all creation, and the good news is merely the news that this that this is true, and that that God is faithful to His promise. Now, what does that mean? The way I see that is that that uh, that there is there is a possibility that there is a way out, and that this is it. And so by, by giving that knowledge to other people, by giving the practices to, the other, to, to other people, that is, a, that is a good act. That's something that helps other people and, and um, fosters their own development. This is another thing we were talking about in the Dabrowski program, that, that the, to be an advisor to other people, to provide the information about, about human nature, about oneself, in order to, to help that person in their own development. And to be a part of the cosmos, a, pr- a productive part of the cosmos, and not just some some cattle slave that lives its life totally at the the whims of someone else, of some other forces, and never achieves what it was here to actually do. And there is this interesting idea that by helping another to see themselves, to see the nature of being alive and and what their issues are, that you can in fact help yourself. Uh, simultaneously, uh, it's a win-win. Um, it's it's you know, like we were getting, like we were saying a little earlier. It's it's quite different from uh, giving false information, from being manipulative. It's all uh, that feeding that is the exact opposite of so much of what we see today in the world, and what we are kind of getting at in our description of how these negative ETs interact with us. I think it's kind of interesting, too, that he says that you should you preach and you share, but he says nothing about making anybody adopt yeah. those views. So that mm-hmm. would be his view of, of God keeping a promise, but respecting this, the free will of this creature that is the child of the cosmos. Mm-hmm. There's nothing about, here it is, and you have to do it. Mm-hmm. You can choose or not, but... By making that available, you have sort of increased the reach of this loving being. So does this imply that we're also making a, I, I think this also suggests that we're making a promise to God in a way. It has to be a two-way street. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if, 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 if there is this uh, promise that he's or she is making to us, that there has to be some amount of faith and work involved in, uh, increasing the connection. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And for, um, if you look at, well, the the word grace, it's actually, grace is just a translation of the word for gift. Mm-hmm. So, so God's grace is God's gift to, to the, to the universe. And if you look at ancient, um, the ancient ideas about a gift, a gift wasn't, um, wasn't a one-way affair. When you gave a gift, there was a reciprocal aspect to it. So the person receiving the gift then was under an obligation to the to the person who gave the gift. There was this two-way relationship. So there was a, a responsibility, and uh, 
this kind of, it's like a circle of giving. Mm -hmm. And so there is, so that, that faithfulness does go both ways. And that, well, that's a whole nother, uh, that's a whole nother topic is the nature of faith. But, uh, but the third practice on something that you were saying, Mm -hmm. Carolyn, about, uh, it's not like everyone has to do this. In fact, the third practice that Paul, that uh, Paul engages in, in the letters is church discipline. And this was kicking out uh, a bad member Mm -hmm. because for Paul, the uh, a pathological element in the community was an opening for the influence of the powers. Uh-huh. Now, being a part of the community in general did provide some protection because for Paul, the community and the expression of love in a community was the, the ultimate thing. And so that by itself is a, is a protection from the influence of the powers. And even will offer a bit of protection to the, the deviant individual. But when you have a deviant individual, the, it goes the other way too, right? Like I just said. So that provides an opening, like a corrupting influence. That's where we get into ponderology, mm-hmm. where the one deviant individual can have a corrupting influence on any society, any community, any group. And so the act of, of disciplining um, that individual, excluding them from a group, was all is also a, a vital part of this, and so this is something that we are totally missing in our culture, because we do not exclude the the individuals who are a corrupting influence. We put them in power, or we let them we let them get there. And so, so if you think that through, that these are the, that the and you think about the nature of the people that rule our planet, these, uh, and the fact that we do nothing to prevent them from getting there. <clears throat> Well, well, Paul talks uh, about a lot about um, structures mm-hmm. in society, and one of the things that he mentions is that these structures, you know, they can be organized in a way where you know they can um, they can kind of uh, bring in the influence of either the divine or uh, the demonic. Demonic, yeah, exactly. And that's kind of what we see today, and you know that we're we're led by you know these uh these really base I call them humans, but they're more like creatures and and they create these systems that um that are used as mechanisms to bring the worst of the worst into our world mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know and and where the highest developed people you know they're they're just not around. Well, particularly in the United States mm-hmm. and in the Western world. So this just shows that how this, how these, how the powers for Paul, and I think just in truth, influence every level of 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 creation. Mm-hmm. From so from our lowest basis nature, our we can call it our evolutionary endowment, to to our social structures. And it's not that the the structures themselves are evil inherently evil it's not like politics is inherently a bad thing it's that like <laughs> no i disagree somebody has to catch the dogs well if you look at it in different terms um like a you know more older societies paleo societies you know there was a, a political order but it was led by the shamans mm-hmm. you know it was led by people who, who could transduce transduce these uh higher energies um, and you know, live by these ideals, and whereas the society that we have today is just turned on its head. And it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, uh, bringing this back to Castaneda for a moment, something else that's that's interesting um, is, you know, he mentions the ancient sorcerers, and he stated that their big mistake was trying to battle these these big uh, these big kind of uh, aliens, if you will, or or um, or otherworldly forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said that was exactly the wrong thing to do. The right thing to do was to battle the petty tyrant, which which on our level would be uh, the psychopath uh, and and everything that uh, psychopathic thinking on our level uh, implies. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, we talked a lot today about uh, you know what it means to resist, uh, what it means to to protect oneself from these other supernatural forces. And uh, the crux of it, I think we've been getting at, is let's practice on our level. Not that we want to mm-hmm. seek out uh, a petty tyrant or, or a sociopath or have these negative interactions. In fact, they're very stressful. Mm-hmm. But to deal with them as as um, wisely and as uh, you know, as smart a way as we can. And I think that's something that Paul would agree with too, yeah, because uh, he he did mention um, something in similar terms about you know not battling uh, society like that's that's the, you basically can't, uh, but you can you know you can do it um, you can work on uh, the individual level and um, you know basically you know build your Build your own awareness in a sense. and increase, you know, on whatever small level in his communities in mm-hmm. face yeah. of something good and decent. Um, and that's that's I don't want to say that's enough, but maybe it is enough. You just mm-hmm. do what you can. And he went about creating these communities, and from every description, they were quite vibrant. Uh, he had to go and scold them occasionally, but uh, but that was the goal: was not to bring down for what what for his. Era would have been the ultimate petty tyrant of the Roman government, but simply to create the space for these ideals and values to grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, just a couple more points before we kind of tie it all together and wrap it up. The uh, well, I think just from the conversation so far, it's pretty clear that in order to get a handle on the UFO phenomenon and everything that goes along with it, you really got to branch out into a whole bunch of different areas. And yeah, that I think that's the problem that most ufologists run up against is that they're so narrow-minded in their approach that they miss the big picture, miss all the implications in pretty much every field of, of uh, study and everything because you need to look at history, you need to look at psychology, human psychology, and not just, but even then, when you look into human psychology, you've got to get through all the crap and all the just uni-level, just um, nonsense that's that's out there in the in the mainstream psychological literature and just ideas. You've got to get into parapsychology. You have to get into, well, you can get into religious ideas, philosophy. Um, it's just, it's kind of endless. You can't really, you can't really limit yourself to to this nuts and bolts. Oh, well, I want I want to know how UFOs get from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's got to be some kind of nuclear reactor in there. 
That's kind of reflective of um, what we were talking about during the Dabrowski show and how how the um, when you're when you're engaged in you know that primitive level that you know your interests you know are are very narrow and you know we could say that for many many fields or most all fields in in Western society you know they have their subject matter and you know just focus have a very narrow focus on that and you know by eliminating or by having this myopic view you know you you miss uh, so many pieces that you know tie together and that's been fostered it's you know even just getting back down to the realm of study of this world uh, I think um, Ms. Yajic was complaining that geologists do not talk to history people and history people do not talk to paleontology people and, and no one talks to the Egyptologists that's right well Maybe they don't need to be talked to, but the idea that that this idea of you stick you stick to your own knitting and you don't look at anybody else's and and so the opportunity to make larger conclusions about the world has been stymied amazingly just because of this this whole um, view that's been fostered in academia mm-hmm. you know and that's a, that's just one example. You know, you get countries comparing notes, different populations comparing notes about their about their living conditions, and you know, people in the U.S. You know, if they were actually to go over and see what's going on in Russia, they would go, "Hmm, things aren't as great here as we thought they were." Well, I tell you, I you know, uh, the 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 more I learn about things as they're happening in the world, uh, the different ways that. Social engineering is the Agriterra commercial uh, <laughs> incorporated. Uh, the, the more I realize, uh, if if we are being socially engineered, if that's true, uh, if we are being farmed, then uh, they've done a pretty darn good job of it uh, because it is so pervasive. Mm-hmm. Uh, things are so upside down and twisted. Um, uh, and until you really see a, a little bit of, of of it in everything, I mean, absolutely everything, um, everything is kind of normalized. It's it's not an issue. It's just the way things are, and you think that most things are correct, uh, but they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one parting thought you can leave with today and chew on a little bit. I think. I, I think that point is a really good one of the really good arguments that we are being farmed because things are so massively bad mm-hmm. that you know it can't get that way by accident no yeah we need a we need an internet meme with that guy from ancient aliens right now aliens <laughs> why are things so bad yeah aliens. but taking a look at the, the yeah. big picture you see planet earth as a giant farm and if we kind of put together all the ideas that we've been talking about, not just in these shows, but for past weeks and months, then um, let's say that these powers exist and they have influence on people, and that it's this, and that the one of the implications from looking at it from all these different angles is that it's those with the least self-control, the least amount of being, that are the most vulnerable to control by these forces. So what what does that imply? Well that these individuals tend to be psychopaths and psychopaths tend to achieve positions of power and psychopaths then rule the polis. They create the political structure that is maybe not, if not inherently evil, then 
definitely evil under the influence of these individuals. And so it creates this kind of circle where it's kind of like in, in, in a concentration camp where the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the real guards get, the, get some inmates to act as their police force within the camp. And that's what we have. We have, we have these agents of the powers, presumably, and they're the ones running the show. And they're the ones policing and ruling the planet. So if we want to look to, to what's really going on, then we don't even need to really, you know, it's not, it's not a necessary thing to accept the reality of, of aliens or, or, or powers. I mean, you, can, you don't have to, no one has to, but just look at life on this planet and you'll get pretty close and the, the results will be the same because the, the problem is the individuals in power that they are psychopaths. Mm-hmm. Now, just it's just a little bit of a extra bonus and a fun mm-hmm. way to look at it. If you if you look at them as being a, somehow or other alien control, yeah, being manipulated and influenced to to act in certain ways to achieve a certain a certain structure, a certain social status quo that is beneficial to them. And uh, I think that's scary enough. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually a very practical way of looking at it because. You know, you you read about um, these things that are happening uh, with ISIS, with Azov Battalion, uh, with the Japanese World War II, and you know, it, it's unfathomable that people would behave that way. So then, let's take it to the next step. For all intents and purposes, these individuals are aliens. Mm-hmm. They're aliens to the values of human beings who. Can can hardly process or conceive of the 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 type of person that can do these types of things. Um, so another way of looking at it. Yeah. And how do the my last parting thought how how does this influence take place? This is where I think parapsychology comes in. Mm-hmm. Technological parapsychology, perhaps. Super, super parapsychology, super psi. Because how do you influence a person to do to do something? Well, you can. Uh... No heck, you don't even need aliens for that. They've been yeah. having uh, EF weapons for what since the 70s. They've got patents on them. You can go look them up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you know this all is a you know big take-home message that you know while these ideas you know may be theoretical that. Um, you know there are a lot of practical lessons you know, that we can that we can utilize and hopefully make our lives you know better uh, from it um you know it has it has so many applications and 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 it, and it is interesting and it is curious and you know that's that's kind of the basis for knowledge of building your knowledge is is to be curious about things you know, the first question is isn't that weird that's weird i wonder what i'm going to look at that all right. Did we cover everything in the universe? Highlighted. Yeah. Highlighted stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Very selectively. There could be a whole year's worth of shows on this, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Depending on where you want to go. Well, if if we left anything out, I'm sure our, our listeners and chatters will let us know. <laughs> but um, or or we'll cover it. 
another time. Did you want to give the names of those books again? We had Trojan Feast. Yeah, Trojan Feast, don't know the author. Practices of Power by Robert Moses. Yep. The that quote you read for was from Active Side of Infinity, I believe, by I Carlos so. Castaneda. Yes. And uh, of course, there's High Strangeness and the Wave by Laura Knight Yatchik that we talked about. Mm-hmm. The Mothman prophecies. Definitely. Talked about uh, Missing Four One One. Yep. Yeah. And uh, Skinwalkers. Oh. Yeah. Morning. Morning Star Pass. Morning Star Pass. Well, there's your reading list for the week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So we're gonna close out with some alien music. This is Area 51 by uh, Atlantic Collective, I believe. And uh, we'll see you all next week. Have a good day. Here. And we're going to Ships in the orbit of the satellite's passage.